Hello and welcome to Powerhouse Politics. I'm ABC News Chief White House Correspondent Jonathan Carl. And I'm ABC News Political Director Rick Klein. Rick, there is a lot going on. We had these consequential uh, cases being argued at the Supreme Court, cases that will probably govern separation of powers issues for a generation. And that, that may be the third story of the, of the day. Uh, we have, of course, the warnings from Anthony Fauci uh, in that surreal scene uh, testifying before the Health, Education and Labor uh, Committee in the Senate, uh, where you know all of the witnesses were in some form of modified quarantine. And so was the chairman of the committee uh, running... Uh, the hearing from home via whatever he was using, uh, whichever program he was using with his dog by his side, uh, Lamar Alexander. Um, and of course, um, the ongoing situation with the um, with the president of the United States, who seems at this point with um, with real concerns about how fast this country can can open up with uh, with deaths in this country from coronavirus hitting the 80,000 mark seems to be intent on really going after his enemies. And where I want to start, though, Rick, is with one of the biggest questions that you and I have been talking about really since this crisis hit, which is what happens if uh, we are still in the midst of a pandemic, perhaps a second wave that is possibly worse than the first wave, just as we are going into late October, early November, and the presidential election. So, Rick, uh, I wanted to start with a piece of sound here from an interview uh, that Time Magazine conducted uh, with Jared Kushner, of course, the uh, the senior advisor to the president, on this critical question that you and I have been talking about. Trevor, can you please play the sound? Is there any scenario, including a second outbreak in the fall, where the elections move past November 3rd? Uh, that's too far in the future to tell. Nothing that I'm aware of now. But uh, again, our focus right now is just on getting well, the country. Will you commit that the elections will happen on November 3rd? Uh, it's not my decision to make. So I, I'm not sure I can commit one way or the other. But right now, that's the plan. So that was, of course, Brian Bennett of Time Magazine asking uh, the question. And um, I did check my constitution, Rick, and I did see nothing in uh, Article 1, 2, or 3 uh I saw I saw nothing that suggested that the senior advisor or, for that matter, the the son-in-law of the president gets to determine whether or not there's a presidential election. Have I missed anything? No, you are correct. Uh, and the, it is set by law. And, and it's in, this is an intriguing little little side note to a lot of what's going on that has serious repercussions over these next six months, because uh, Joe Biden has suggested that uh, it's the next step by the president. Can you imagine the cataclysmic response that that would draw if there was any serious whisper in the White House of moving the election? Congress sets the date of the election. Congress is not inclined to change the date of the election, but there's a whole lot of interesting things going on in the states that are changing the process of voting, including the special elections that happened just this week in Wisconsin and California that are fundamentally changing the way people vote. And those things are going to have to happen. And the president on the eve of that voting was uh, saying that there was a, a democratic effort to rig the election in California. Now, it appears that the Republican uh, will have won uh, that that election. It hasn't been projected yet by, uh, by news outlets. But um, I think the president's not going to not going to continue talking about rigging if that's the case, but we're going to see all these battles play out. Uh, and this is going to be lingering out there. The possibility, even if it's extremely remote and, and, and almost impossible, that uh, they would delay in some way the, the big election itself. It's, it's almost unfathomable. So uh, let's just be perfectly clear and just establish this. And we, we just, just so there's no misunderstanding. 
neither Jared Kushner nor his father-in-law slash boss has any control over the date of the election. The, 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 even if the president came out, and by the way, he has been consistent. I've asked him variations of, of, of the same question, uh, and so have others. He has been consistent that he fully intends that there's going to be a presidential election on time, but it's not his decision. It is not in it's, his power to change the date of that election. That, that's right. Um, and, the, the and nobody caveat, at the White House is claiming it. The only thing I'd say, though, is that if, we, if we're in a situation where there is a, another spike, a national emergency of some sort, it's going to be very hard to vote in lots of places. And will people potentially say, well, maybe we should think about changing the election? I could see it happening. But the, I think much more relevant is going to be the process of voting and mail-in voting and absentee voting and the political and legal battles that are going to happen and are already happening basically in every state uh, in, in advance of, uh, of an election unlike we've ever seen. Okay, quick question before we get on to the situation here in Washington. You, you brought up the, uh, uh, the special election out in California. Uh, this is a Democratic seat that it appears that the Republicans have picked off in California. How significant is that? that, that I mean, we often look at these uh, special elections as, for better or for worse, a, a leading indicator. What, how yeah. significant is that? What should we read into that apparent victory uh, by the Republicans? Well, I'll tell you what Democrats say is they think they're going to win the race back again in, in the fall, and they didn't put a lot of attention into it. I think that's a misreading of the import of a special election. We always read and overread uh, too much into these because they're one-offs, but this is a district that had been Republican before. The Democrats won it big. Uh, it was the Katie Hill seat, so it was kind of marred by um, salacious scandal in that. But it was no reason the Democrats couldn't win there. And the history of mail-in voting, um, Republicans certainly fear that it, it favors the Democrats. If the Republicans able to win there, you're going to hear a lot about uh, some immutable facts of this election, including the president's sustained popularity in portions of the country, not just in red states. I mean, this is a this is a redder area of California, such as it goes. But as you mentioned, Hillary Clinton won there. Uh, Katie Hill won there. Uh, this was uh, held by the Democrats. And now for the first time, it would appear in 22 years, you're going to see a, a House district in California move from blue to red. And it says something about how the president is able to uh, keep his political coattails intact, even in the, in the midst of coronavirus, even in the midst of scandal, in the midst of lagging approval ratings. He is a very popular figure in portions of the country, and it's going to matter even in swing seats. So I, I want to get to the press conference. Uh, the, the president, you know, the, these canceled, uh, uh, no longer happening coronavirus press conferences actually somehow continue to ha be happening, but but they are largely featuring the president uh, uh, as as a if not a solo act, close to a solo act. Uh, but he did come and do, do a press conference in the Rose Garden. Um, we also we also did hear uh, from, um, uh, from from a couple of members uh, from, from well from one member of his coronavirus task force and from another expert, but it was primarily the president. And the president said something I twice definitively implied it throughout the press conference uh, that testing testing, which is just as everybody is saying, is is the key to getting a hold of this pandemic and reopening the country, that testing is a great success story. Uh, it was almost a mission to accomplish uh, declaration. And he said twice that uh, everybody who wants a test can get a test. Um, this is something he said, of course, back at the CDC, uh, what, close to, uh, close to two months ago. Uh, it wasn't true then, and it is not true today. Although we have to say there have been 
great advancements, new tests that have come on on, on the market, a new saliva test that is capable of, of, of testing tens of thousands of people a day uh, per lab. Um, he talks about the Abbott, the instant test. There, there are advancements that have been made here, and there are more people being made. But the president said, right now, anybody who wants a test can get a test, and I challenged him on that. If I can just uh, get a clarification on the on the testing, we've seen clearly that the numbers of tests have gone up. There have been yeah. some advancements in testing. But you said twice here today that every American who wants a test can get a test. Yes. Uh, that's not the case. 1.9 million tests per day is far short of every American that wants a test to be able to well, get Well, I'm going to have the ad but I will say just from listening and hearing like you do, we all do, not everybody should get a test because they have to have certain things and they're going to know when they're not feeling right. Those are the people that will be getting the test. But Admiral, I'll let you take it from there, please. So everybody who needs a test can get a test. We have plenty of tests for that. Right now in America, anybody who needs a test can get a test in America with the numbers we have. If you are symptomatic with a respiratory illness, uh, that is an indication for a test and you can get a test. So Americans who are going back to work shouldn't expect and shouldn't need, shouldn't want to have the same thing that people coming to work here at the White House have, which is the ability to get tested regularly, regardless of symptoms? Let me clarify as well. People who come into close contact with the president get tested on a regular basis, okay? If I were not in close contact with the president specifically, I would not get tested. Now, this does seem to be a wise policy. I mean, you don't want to have, you know, the, the people that are meeting with the president should be tested. I mean, it seems like uh, it's, a, it's something the Secret Service, uh, among others, uh, should, should want to sure. see happen. But there is a real, well, first of all, the, the, did you notice that the, the, the switch, you know, he says everybody who wants tests can get a test. And then it's like, well, you shouldn't want to test. I mean, you know, you should not everybody should be tested. Um, I mean, it's just it's just flatly not true that everybody that wants tests can get a test. And we all hear stories every single day about people who do actually need a test. These are people who have the symptoms who, um, you know, under all the criteria that the, that the CDC has outlined should be getting tested who can't get tested. So I don't think either one of those statements is correct. Um, but yeah. putting that aside for a second, what is what kind of a political message is it? <laughs> Put aside the health concerns here for a second. What kind of a political message is it that people at the White House can get a test every day, but out in the country, uh, no, you shouldn't be getting a test. And, and the message sent by the lack of mask wearing by the president um, and, and until very recently by almost everyone in the White House is also part of that message making. The president talking this week about uh, the good and the bad of masks, which is a, a curious construct. And this testing thing becomes even more relevant as we go forward because uh, we're going to see as states continue this process of rolled reopening, as businesses reopen, we're going to see a lot of people who are essentially forced back to work. Um, that if they want to make their livelihoods continue, they're going to have to work. And as part of that, they're going to be exposed and they're going to want to know uh, what they carry in terms of antibodies, what they carry in terms of the disease, what people around them. It matters not just for them, but for all of us. And as we contact trace and as we trace the spread of this disease and hopefully the re- receding of this disease, that kind of near universal testing or universal testing in the right risk groups is critical. And, and, and you hear that from every public health expert that we've talked to, John, uh, from the beginning on this. Uh, and you're right. I, I, we've been interviewing at ABC a whole bunch of people who've made that uh, made that point that they want the test, they need the test, they 
can't get the test. The president has been saying from the very beginning that testing is not an issue. And I think he's conflating a couple of different things. He's, test, he's conflating the, the availability or the, the, the production of tests with the actual uh, access to those tests. And those are different things. And yes, we've ramped up the production to have that capacity. But in terms of actually getting it to everybody, that's just not happening. All right, now, Rick, uh, we should say uh, after our break, we are going to come back and talk to uh, a key Republican senator, uh, somebody who actually knows a little uh, a thing or two about about health care uh, uh, and, and ask him about the extraordinary hearing with with Anthony Fauci. But before we, we take our break and before uh, we get to that, uh, this this Rose Garden press conference, I, I want to play one more uh, clip from it. It's the way it ended. And I have to say it's probably the most uncomfortable conclusion to a presidential press conference that I have ever personally witnessed. So uh, let's just play it out. And, and, and you're going to be hearing the first voice you're going to be hearing from um, is uh, a, 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 our friend and colleague from CBS News. Here it is. I've said many times that the U.S. is doing far better than any other country when it comes to testing. Yes, why does that matter? Why is this a global competition to you if everyday Americans are still losing their lives and we're still seeing more cases every day? Well, they're losing their lives everywhere in the world. And maybe that's a question you should ask China. Don't ask me. Ask China that question, okay? When you ask them that question, you may get a very unusual answer. Yes, behind you, please. Sir, why are you saying that to me specifically? I'm telling you, I'm not saying it specifically to anybody. I'm saying it to anybody that would ask a nasty question That's like that. That's not a nasty question. Please concept. go ahead. Why does it matter? Okay, uh, anybody else? Please go ahead in the back, please. I have two questions. No, it's okay. But we'll you pointed here. to me. I have two questions, Mr. Next. President. Next, please. But you, did, you called on me. I did, and you didn't respond, and now I'm calling on... Sorry, I just want the to young lady me. in the back, please. I just wanted to let my colleague okay. finish. But can I ask you Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much. Appreciate but it. Thank you very much. So, so what? What a mess! So, uh, what so, just happened, John? I mean, you were okay, there. So, 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 yeah, so, 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 let me describe that 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 really bizarre scene. So, uh, Weijia Jiang, our colleague from CBS, was asking a totally legitimate and non nasty question. Uh, about, you know, I mean, we're the United States of America. Why you know, why is it a question of, well, we do more than South Korea? I mean, what, what, what should matter is what do we do here? And is it enough for us to get reopened? That's the question. And she's Chinese-American, and uh, the, the president frequently invokes China, but you heard the inflection in his voice. You heard the way he practically, you know, spat out the word China uh, to her. Ask China a question, which, by the way, she had not invoked China uh, in 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 her question at all. Uh, so, so there there was that, and she clearly, uh, and I think, legitimately took offense to the way he he threw that at her. Uh, he then the president then tried to call on Caitlin Collins, who wanted to at first defer to Weijia to to give her a chance to ask her follow up. And that further annoyed the president because he wanted to quickly move on. And then he tried to go to Yamichelle Sindor of PBS NewsHour in another part of the Rose Garden and called on her. And Yamish, to her credit, did not want to step on Caitlin Collins. So you had what I thought was a something that I would like to personally see more of in White House briefings, which is reporters – allowing other reporters a chance to follow up on questions, even when the official, whether it's the president or the press secretary, quickly tries to move on. 
to give a beat, to give a little bit of time, to allow the reporter to get out the follow-up question. Now, if ultimately the follow-up question is not taken, then you go on and you, you ask your question. But give give a chance. Don't allow to be used by the president or the press secretary or whatever official as a way to avoid a follow-up question. Um, and uh, so I, I think that was good. That's what Caitlin first did uh, with Ouija, and that's what Yamish did when uh, the president tried to go to her to to, uh, to punish Caitlin for allowing Ouija a chance to answer a question. So, I mean, it, it was just a bizarre scene. And when the president walked off, it kind of caught everybody by surprise, including his own officials. Everybody kind of was a little stunned. I mean, we all we we all sat in our seats for uh, for a, you know a minute or so as he walked out and walked up and went back into the Oval Office and everybody said, well, that was uncomfortable. Um, but this was a, this was a, this was a press conference where the president was trying to uh, tout the great success on, on testing. It was billed as a major announcement. It was not a major announcement. He was repeating talking points that he's been making for some time, primarily on this question that Weijia was asking about, which is about, uh, you know, testing vis-a-vis the rest of the world. Um, so there was no major announcement, and he spent a good chunk of that press conference lashing out at others. Um, not, you know, I mean, he, he, this, he, this is where he invoked Obamagate and accused former President Barack Obama of committing a felony. And when, you know, my, my friend Phil Rucker of the Washington Post tried to ask him to specify what he was talking about, uh, he just attacked Phil instead of answering and giving his giving the the um, you know <laughs> explaining what he was talking about. Very strange press conference. Very strange press conference. And e- even by the standards of the press conferences we've seen over the past couple of months. Yeah, and and John, you've been there for for a lot of them uh, a, a lot of them as, as it's gone on. All right, let's take a quick break, and we'll be right back with Senator Bill Cassidy of Louisiana. Welcome back to Powerhouse Politics, and we are joined now by Senator Bill Cassidy, the senior senator from the great state of Louisiana. Thank you for joining us, Senator. Hey, I'm pl- very pleased to be with you. Thank you for having me. You were at the, one, of the, um, one of the most surreal hearings that I have ever witnessed, I think that, 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 that Congress has ever witnessed, uh, the, the, featuring the, uh, the, the testimony of Dr. Redfield, Dr. Uh, Fauci, Dr. Hahn. Uh, all in a modified quarantine, so appearing remotely. And your chairman and his dog also a fee, uh, appearing, um, uh, running the running the hearing. Well, not the dog, but uh, but Chairman Lamar Alexander running the hearing from quarantine because a member of his staff has tested positive. Really, an extraordinary hearing. But I I, I wanted to ask you before we get to the specifics of that. Uh, following the hearing, uh, C- Congresswoman Liz Cheney uh, tweeted this. Uh, Dr. Fauci is one of the finest public servants we have ever had. He is not a partisan. His interest is in saving lives. We need his expertise and his judgment to defeat this virus. All Americans should be thanking him every day. And I just wanted to ask you, do you, uh, do you I assume you agree with, uh, with Congresswoman Cheney? I do. Now, the, now there, there, there's a caveat there. I'm in total agreement with what the Congress, Congresswoman said. Um, uh, but Fauci himself, there's some people that give Dr. Fauci infallibility. Fauci does not want to be labeled as infallible. And yesterday when, you know, pushed on his limits, he goes, listen, I'm not the end all, uh, but I'm one person trying to bring my clinical, my scientific expertise to bear. Totally with him. So I do think there has to be an understanding 
the same understanding that Fauci has of himself, that our knowledge is limited and we must work through these decisions together as a scientific community, a political community, as a national community, that he should not be the font, if you will, uh, and only he depended upon. So there's a tension there, which Fauci recognizes, but sometimes I'm, I'm afraid is not recognized in the press. Yeah, and, and, and it's, it's, a, it's a great point, and he absolutely recognizes that. He is only one of the voices on the health aspect of this, and the health aspect is not the only question here. There, is also, there, are, also, there are also economic questions that are related. Uh, so uh, I, think, I think that he would be the last person to say that he is the end-all and be-all, as we heard him actually directly say he's not the end-all, um, and, uh, nor that he is certainly not infallible. But the reason why I asked the question is, we have seen increasingly loud voices vilifying him. Um, we've seen, you know, the most recent thing uh, was what Liz Cheney was talking about. Um, you know, we have a, a, a pro-Trump uh, a college group uh, talking about how Rand Paul shreds Anthony Fauci. And in some of these protests we've seen around the country, we see, uh, you know, we, we see a growing number of signs of, you know, people vilifying Fauci and there's even a kind of a conspiracy theory out there that he's, you know, somehow, um, you know, responsible for all that we're seeing unfold. And uh, I'm just, what, what do you think drives that? I mean, why, why do we, why do we see people strong supporters of the president um, vilifying the health expert that the president himself has says uh, that, 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 that he values and is, and is using to help make his decisions? People are incredibly frustrated and they're looking at what's taking place. They recognize that perhaps in their area, they don't need to be locked down. But it seems as if the dominant message is that being generated by a media center like New York. Everybody must be locked down. And they look around their circumstances. Their business is going out of business. Uh, maybe they can't get a haircut. Maybe they're having severe financial difficulty. There seems to be a disconnect. Now, Fauci totally gets, as he said in his testimony yesterday, that we have regions in our state, we're, uh, in our nation, we're a big nation. What applies to one place may not apply to another. All that nuance, though, is lost in the reporting that is done. And Fauci becomes an advocate for something which I don't think he advocates for. In fact, I know he doesn't, which is the same standard applied to all. But if your business is going out of business and you look around and the incidence of infection in your community is very low, you're frustrated, you're trying to break out of this box, you feel like you must, and unfortunately people are taking it out on Fauci. I think it's uh, not fully appreciating what he's trying to say. Senator, I'm intrigued by some of the things you've had to say about uh, about an immunity registry. As someone who's a, who's a physician uh, with a with a long history around vaccinations, how would this work? How would it need to work? And how would you be able to apply this kind of registry in a widespread uh, fashion across age and demographics groups, even? Even going down to children, you've talked a lot about the models that, that are out there around measles and the like, but how would this work in practice and how important is that for this next phase? The same way it works now. If a child is vaccinated at birth and then goes off to school 25 years later, she goes online to pull her record off the online registry to give it to the university so that they know she's been vaccinated for measles. That's how it works now. Privacy, 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 privacy has been worked out. We know 
privacy is respected. We know the laws are robust because we've had this system for decades. There's never been a problem. Um, and so and privacy has to be preeminent. So if you just use the same registry, uh, listen, uh, I know that uh, I've been exposed and the best science pointing forward is that I am therefore now immune, at least for some limited time, uh, at least for a year perhaps, maybe longer, then that's important. It's important to an employer because if you're not immune, the employer has to give you accommodations to protect you, to keep you from getting infected. But if you are immune, you can have a public-facing position in which you say somebody walks in and has to buy a car part at your local auto parts store. You can be at that front position and not have to wear a mask. Most people don't want to wear a mask. They just don't. So if you tell them, hey, listen, you don't have to wear a mask if you're positive, uh, if you're immune, they're going to rip that mask off. Uh, It's uncomfortable. So uh, I think it really benefits the individual. You see this beginning to happen. Epic is going to start allowing people to download. Epic is the electronic health record company. As, As in clear, the people that go through in the airport and do a retinal scan, both are saying that they will give the individual the ability to testify, if you will, that they have been exposed and they are now immune because their antibody is positive. They're presupposing the science, which is still a little bit to be determined, but really is pointing towards if you've been previously exposed, developed antibodies, you're now immune. So we see this happening now. Um, uh, So it's kind of organically forming. Again, privacy is always preeminent, but it's going to be important for us to figure that out. Senator, you made reference a, a few moments ago to the, the, the political climate that, that surrounds all of this. And, and John and I have been struck by a couple of the things that we've seen recently. At the, at the same news conference, the president is talking about expanding testing. Uh, he attacked President Obama, talked about something called Obamagate and uh, suggesting that he's somehow guilty of, uh, of felonies. We saw Mitch McConnell the other day said Obama should just be keeping his mouth shut in the tradition of other presidents, notwithstanding what Trump just said. How is that kind of thing productive? Is it productive um, or does it not matter? Or is it just politics and that's, and that's to the side during this, this moment of national crisis? Uh, I didn't see it, so I'll take what you said. Um, yeah, I just haven't been following all that. But it sounds like politics. Obama kept going after George W. Bush late into his term. Uh, so um, um, maybe the incumbent's always aware of the situation that was given to them. But, you know, I haven't really followed it. And it seems politics that seems to be practiced by all. So does, it, does it worry you that, that, it, that, it, that it is potentially impacting the response to this, that, that we've seen now increasingly partisan packages brought forward by the House versus the Senate? Is there, are we at a moment now where you've lost any of the kind of bipartisan consensus around this? I am less concerned about what happens in Washington, D.C. than what happens on a state and local level. Congress has given state and local public health departments and governments lots of resources to begin to implement programs that can help contain disease and allow Americans to return to their life. Now, what I actually wake up and thinking about is not the spat at the press conference, but I wake up thinking about, hmm, how can my local health department better open a school? How can that school be reopened knowing that the children are safe, the families from whence they come is safe, the staff and the teachers are safe? That's what I think about. And when I hear from somebody, well, we need money, I say, what do you need? You need money. Congress has given hundreds, hundreds of millions of dollars, billions of dollars to your state to implement this. You've got the money. 
and you've got the resources that CDC will be making available to you. Let's get on it. Uh, that's what I'm worried about. Uh, gentlemen, if I sound frustrated, maybe I've had too much coffee today, but it really seems that we need to move beyond the beltway into the local health department to figure out how to keep Americans safe and allow them to reopen their beauty shop. Well, there's, there's a lot of frustration all around. Before you go, let me just ask you on that. Uh, do you think that the state of Louisiana specifically, uh, which you represent, do, do, does your state, do your state and local governments have the resources they need to deal with this? Or do uh, you think, yes, go and ahead. I got $1.8 billion from the federal government in order to uh, implement these programs. Uh, so, uh, and I was just texting with my governor this morning, and he is very supportive of uh, efforts to figure out how to reopen schools. So hats off to my governor. Uh, my big thing, gentlemen, is that I think that children are bearing a huge price for this. Very, very low likelihood of having symptomatic coronavirus infection, but a high likelihood of having their educational development uh, retarded uh, at a critical point in their neurologic development. Having to stay home, uh, in some cases, parents can't work because they don't have child care otherwise. So their economic, their educational, potentially their emotional development thwarted uh, when they have almost no symptoms uh, as a group from having coronavirus infection. So I just think we have to solve this. Congress has given the resources. Let's get at it. All right. It's always uh, great to talk to you, Senator Cassidy. We appreciate you taking the time to come on Powerhouse Politics. Thank you, gentlemen. Oh, Rick, I, it's, a, it's a good point about kids uh, bearing the brunt of this. I mean, you know, um, there, there are huge questions about whether or not, uh, you know, what the school year is going to look like next year. We've already heard from the Cal State system uh, saying that, uh, uh, you know, there will not, you know, that we will not have a, uh, a college semester like we like we expect uh, in, in the fall. Uh, it'll be online. Um I mean, huge, huge questions and, and real frustration. I think he's totally right about that. Real frustration. It, 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 this is not – this is one thing that is bipartisan. <laughs> yes, yes. And, John, I think that is an underappreciated political dynamic. And I'll say that as yeah. someone that's got two kids downstairs trying to homeschool as I speak. I know you've got, you've got some college-age yeah. kids at, at your house as well. But it, it, isn't, it isn't a partisan issue when it comes to when school resumes. And there are a lot of parents – Red state, blue state, Democrat, Republican, anywhere in between who are anxious to see um, the kids resume camp, school, regular activities to some extent. And that pressure is going to grow. And the idea, I mean, Dr. Fauci referenced this uh, at that hearing, John, that, um, that, that it, we, it may be a fantasy to think that we're back to any, anything approaching normal uh, come the next school year. That is going to be a very frustrating thing to lots of people that, that want to get on with their lives, their kids' lives. And I think I think Dr. Cassidy is is right that there will be different ways that different community communities uh, deal with this and and are forced to deal with this. And I think on this on the on the broader issue of of testing, I think that there's some interesting issues around civil liberties that start to to get to get brought into this. I think uh, the, the fact that it was Senator Rand Paul calling out Fauci was not a mistake, and a lot of the online uh, criticism that Fauci has gotten has come from civil libertarians and a libertarians period. Uh, that is going to be fascinating because that, that is a group that the president um, has been close to and will remain close to, uh, you'd imagine, over the next six months. All right, Rick, uh, that is all the time we have. I've got to wait, run. John, wait, uh, before, oh, go before you go, yeah. I, I, heard, I heard the president um, read your book. Is that true? Can you confirm this? <laughs> <laughs> well, we—I think we had talked about how uh, I, I had two separate 
uh, two people, two separate occasions, tell me that they had seen uh, the book uh, on the president's desk. One time was in the Oval Office and the other time was in uh, the study off the Oval Office where he often eats lunch. Uh, so I'd heard those reports, but yeah, I, I think he talked about it, right? That's what I heard. I heard he read it. I, I'm just saying that we should update people on on the presidential reading list. Um, he's not. Does Trevor have the him. sound? Does Trevor have the actual sound? Because this, this was in the middle of a of of, a, of an event with his top economic advisors and about 15 or so Republican members of Congress talking about the path forward on reopening the country. And suddenly, without my prompting, mind you. Uh, he brought up my book. Mr. The book was very good, by the way. Thank you. It was uh, better than I thought it would be. <laughs> no, it was actually a very good book, but it was actually uh, better about me than I thought it would be. So I appreciate it. You knew me for you've known me for a long time. Twenty-six years. This wasn't really in the schedule, right? <laughs> I knew him long before I thought in terms of this, but. Uh, we had one very good story, right? When we were interviewed at the hotel, and he took a lot of. Guff, they said, he's not running. Why you did this was before I announced. And I've been toying with it for a long time, but never did it, never decided. And he took a lot of guff. But he also got great ratings when he did that interview. So I don't know. But it was it turned out to be a very interesting interview. It was it was sort of the first. So, yeah, your book is very good. Congratulations. How's it doing? Uh, bestseller list. Bestseller. Bestseller. That's good. So, Rick, I don't know exactly what to make of that, um, but... Uh, I don't know. What do you think? I think you've got amazing material for the paperback edition. That's what I think is going on <laughs> every day out there. It is fascinating. The interplay between the president and the press uh, has been uh, something to behold and, uh, and, and has continuing political import through this year and well beyond. All right. On that note, we will be back next week with another edition of Powerhouse Politics. <laughs> 